to Domestic Chaos. I'm Burr Beard. Pre-election episode. Before election day, I'll do another podcast. Thanks for tuning in. In the Paul Pelosi case, the man lugging a backpack stuffed with rope, zip ties, and a hammer entered the mansion in San Francisco's exclusive Pacific Heights neighborhood through a back door, leaving shards of glass on the ground. The intruder woke up the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and later attacked him, fracturing his skull. The assailant's mission, he'd later tell the police, was to take hostage and perhaps break the kneecaps of Ms. Pelosi, whom he saw as the leader of the pack of lies told by the Democratic Party. All of it was detailed earlier this week in a federal complaint against David LaPop, 42, who was charged with attempting to kidnap Ms. Pelosi and assaulting a relative of a federal official. San Francisco's prosecutor later filed six additional state charges against Mr. DePop. Donald Trump Jr. continues to post jokes about the break-in and the far-right politicians and pundits can't leave it alone. Denise D'Souza, creator of the discredited film about the 2020 election called 2000 Mules, accused the San Francisco Police Department on Monday of covering up the facts. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, wrote that the same mainstream media Democrat activists who questioned former President Donald Trump's ties to Russia were now silencing the new owner of Twitter, Elon Musk. The reason? Mr. Musk deleted a post linking the newspaper that once claimed Hillary Rodham Clinton was dead when she ran for president in 2016. Former President Trump asked the Supreme Court on money to intervene in the long-running dispute over whether a White House committee can obtain access to his tax returns. In the 31-page filing, lawyers for Trump asked Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. to freeze matters while they prepare a former appeal of a ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which held that the House Ways and Means Committee had a right to see his returns. If the Supreme Court does not grant the request to emergency stay, the appeals court would issue a so-called mandate completing its ruling, which would free the Treasury Department to turn over the records. The Supreme Court heard arguments yesterday in two cases challenging race-conscious admission policies at the University of North Carolina and Harvard. The anti-affirmative action group Students for Fair Admissions brought both cases. The group argued that the policies amounted to illegal and unconstitutional and unconstitutional racial discrimination, particularly against white and Asian applicants who might lose out in a zero-sum admissions process if their black and Latino peers were to get preference. The Supreme Court has upheld affirmative action policies going back to 1978 and most recently 2016, but the court's change in logical makeup since then, six of the nine justices typically take an unfriendly view towards affirmative action. The court will likely issue its rulings in June. This is from the New York Times. For years, pundits and political strategists have speculated about Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party. It is an essential question for the party and, as a result, the country. Could there be Trumpism without Trump? And what exactly would that look like? Two weeks before the first midterm election since Trump left office, the answer to the first question seems clear. Trumpism is embedded in the DNA of the party. Most of those who refused to pledge loyalty to the former president lost their primaries or retired to avoid defeat. 
with only a handful of exceptions, Republicans running for office are strongly in Trump's camp and embracing some version of his denials of the 2020 election. Prosecutors have rejected a number of arguments as South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham has put forward an attempt to prevent himself from having to testify about attempts to overturn the 2020 results. Graham was subpoenaed as part of the investigation led by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis into whether Trump committed a crime in his attempts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. Focuses on the former president's phone call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, urging him to find 11,780 votes. The Supreme Court did decline to block Graham's subpoena. Candidates from Arizona to Pennsylvania have adopted Trump's views, bombastic style, and anti-establishment attitude to make them their own. Carrie Lake is running as a political outsider, bashing the media and promising to be the fake news' worst nightmare. She has called the 2020 election stolen, corrupt, and she said she would not have certified President Biden's victory. Last week in an interview with CNN, she refused to say that she would accept the results of the election if she lost. Disinformation has been a feature of American politics, mudslinging, smear campaigns, dirty tricks. Yet wading through the muck ahead of this year's midterm in one fiercely contested state, Pennsylvania, just shows just how thoroughly it warps America's democratic process. Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, has tried to out-Trump Trump, adopting inflammatory stances that excite core conservative supporters and that position him as a 2024 front runner. In March, he signed legislation prohibitive classroom instruction and discussion about sexual orientation and gender identity. His Don't Say Gay bill places DeSantis squarely in the culture war debate over transgender rights, a theme he has continued to address. Reports of people watching ballot boxes in Arizona, sometimes armed or wearing ballistic vests, raise serious concerns about voter intimidation. The Justice Department said money as they stepped into a lawsuit over the monitoring. The statement from the Justice Department comes days after a federal judge refused to bar a group from monitoring the outdoor drop boxes in the suburbs of Phoenix. In health news, the good news about stroke, more people are surviving initial strokes. Bad news about stroke, more people are surviving the initial Stroke with disabilities, which might have been minimized if they received the kind of early intensive physical rehabilitation researchers find can improve function and reduce long-term disability. When 60% are left with diminished use of an arm or a leg, we speak about recovery. We're talking about how the nervous system adapts to the brain, missing a part of the functioning tissue. The question then becomes, how do you get the remainder of the nervous system to adapt? In other words, we get other parts of the brain to pick up the slack. Turns out that, yes, we can. Groundbreaking John Hopkins study confirms what clinicians have long suspected, that we can rewire the brain so that one part takes over functions typically handled by another now-damaged area. Upcoming clinical trials will determine of this unique experience helps patients recover monitor function faster than the current conventional treatment of repetitive exercises. Just two years ago, about 25,000 people had abortions in U.S. states where the procedure is now banned or seriously restricted. 
or probably soon will be, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, allowing these prohibitions to take effect. Where have women in these states turned? Now they're increasingly using telemedicine to get abortion pills. Because of the access to the pills, a gray zone in providing abortions has emerged in the months since the court's decision. The method is safe and effective, though in states with ban, the delivery mechanism is not legal. Across 30 states, requests to aid access for pills has risen to about 218 a day since the court released its decision at the end of June through September. The largest increase in queries came from states that enacted total abortion bans. Turning to the local beats, in July, a tweet made the round spreading falsehoods about voting. Pennsylvania will not be accepting mail-in ballots, declared someone using an account called the Donald J. Trump tracker. In September, mysterious letters began arriving in mailboxes of Chester County on the old main line west of Philadelphia, falsely telling people that their votes might not have been counted in the last election. No, the Democratic candidate for United States Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman does not have tattoos of the Crips, a notorious street gang from L.A., as Newt Gingrich said on Fox. Nor did Republican candidate for governor Doug Mastriano say that Iran's supreme leader had the right idea how women should be treated. Post on Twitter claim he falsely accuses the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia of kidnapping homeless and foster children and experimenting on them with gender transitioning at the start of the campaign event. In Pennsylvania's rural southwestern corner, Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano stood in front of a church to the backdrop of an oversized campaign sign and a towering cross. Also religious talk in Democratic candidate Josh Shapiro's appearances in speeches and ads, he described his faith as a motivator, a member of the congregation in the -the middle-of-the-road denomination of conservative Judaism, Sapiro talks about Friday night Sabbath dinners at home and taking inspiration from an ancient Jewish maxim, quote, no one is required to complete the task, but neither are free to refrain from it. And finally, words from poet and essayist Mike Schneider, who wouldn't want to be a snowflake? Snowflake, a friend of mine, for convenience I'll call him Harold, used this term in an email a while back, a few years ago, actually. And at first, I didn't realize he meant to be insulting me, insulting in a friendly way, if that's possible. And I think it is, although I don't think he pulled it off. Harold was born and raised and still lives in the Deep South. About my age, we hold in common having grown up in small-town rural America, more than a little to have in common. Our regional differences, me from central Pennsylvania, and him, as I said, in the Deep South, nevertheless, seems to count for more than some of us might expect in 21st century America. I don't remember what it was exactly that led Harold to call me a snowflake, and I admit a little sheepishly that at first I didn't know what he was supposed to mean. I realized that he'd been tuned into some media outlets, probably as Rush Limbaugh and others, Fox News, acquainted with enough to know I don't care to be better acquainted. So thanks to my friend, expand the lexicon snowflake in a derogatory sense. Let me emphasize before going farther down this road, Harold is still someone I count as a friend. In many ways, he's a great guy, no doubt about it. Let me say also that he doesn't lack for brains.
consider this, for instance. I have my condo on the windowsill, the skull of a young black bear. It came from Vermont, which is one way I know it's a black bear. Vermont has no brown bears. To explain, I have this skull because about 20 years ago, I spent four weeks at an artist and writer's retreat east of Burlington. While I was there, I met an artist from upstate New York. I'll call her Margaret, whose art involved building structures from readily available materials, e.g. using fallen branches and animal hides to build a wigwam and live in it. In part, she did this to call attention to homelessness. A broader point of Margaret's aesthetic, not immediately obvious to me, was to avoid waste, to use resources as fully as possible. For her, this was called Native American culture, and for her constructions, through arrangements she had somehow managed to work out with authorities, a large part of it art of her project, she used hide from deer killed on highways, carcasses that would otherwise be cremated, contributing to climate change, each one equivalent by some estimates to a 500-mile car trip. Margaret's installations, at least sometimes, mounted near off, mounted near expressway on-off ramps with the intent to call attention to sound ecological practice. In occasion, she lived in her self-built wigwam for weeks, gaining media attention. She cooked venison, ate and shared it with others. For many of this, conditioned by the awareness of inexorable climate change, it's not difficult to think that such kindredness with nature drawn from pre-European Americans, may be a version of the future. At an artist retreat where I met Margaret, a local Vermont hunter lived next door to her studio, and as fate would have it, he'd shot and killed a black bear in season. He had the carcass still fresh at his hunting lodge in the Green Mountains near there. He had no plans to do anything with it beyond letting it become what Whitman, in one of his most magnificent poems, The Compost, called Leavings. It, earth, distills such exquisite winds out of such infused fetor. It renews with such unwitting looks its prodigal annual sumptuous crops. It gives such divine materials to men and accepts such leavings from them at last. Somehow Margaret learned about the bear carcass, probably from seeing a deer carcass hanging upside down from a sturdy branch in the hunter's backyard, ready to be skinned and carved for venison. Can I have it, she asked, or words to that effect? It's all yours, she said, but you have to bring it back. I don't remember how she did that, but she did. I think it was at a meal conversation in the cafeteria at the retreat. Great food, by the way, that someone mentioned the bear carcass. And Margaret invited me to her studio for the ritual carving and feasting on bear meat. Wow, I'm thinking now, this really happened. Somehow Margaret had managed to skin the bear or maybe got the hunter to do that. Anyway, the bear didn't skin her. She had meat, maybe from the rump or thigh, ready to be carved into edible portion, along with a scarily well-honed butcher's knife for me to wield. She also had a one-burner cant stove, one of those amazing Swedish backpacker stoves with a volatile light-up process, and a skillet with a pan of butter. We sizzled some bear chops. I'd eat it again, strong flavor. A little on the gamey side, musky but tasty. Meat has to get you through a Siberian winter if you were sent to a labor camp to imagine the worst-case scenario. So, getting on with this shaggy tale, Margaret gave me 
the bear's head. It was strong medicine, she said. Having it would protect me from bad spirits. It was her gift to me for joining in the ritual of eating the bear. I wrapped in a few layers of heavy plastic and kept it in a six-pack cooler in a restaurant-sized refrigerator at the retreat. For the drive home from Pittsburgh, I secured the wrapped-in-plastic head luggage rack of my Volvo wagon. It was in February, and the near-freezing or below temperatures were helpful considering my cargo. My wife, a writer and artist, was only a little to my surprise almost enthusiastically supported of the Bear Skull Project. Though it was winter, I was able to dig through a hole in our suburban backyard to bury the head. I left a foot or so of deep soil for a few months, maybe six, then dug it up. It was all bone, but still flecks of flesh and cartilage. Final step, soak it in a bucket of undiluted Clorox. After maybe a week, I washed it off and let it dry in the sun. Soon enough, though, I had a bone-white skull with fierce incisors that you can lift out of the jawbone like Lego pieces. Harold, who likes to fish from a boat in the Gulf of Mexico, holds a master's degree in marine biology, but I didn't expect him to know about bears. He was in Pittsburgh staying with me years ago at this point. For kicks, I asked him if he could identify the skull. He looked and with no hesitation said, Young Northern Black Bear. Impressed I was to put it in the Yoda syntax, and I, and I still don't feel at ease with awareness that he has the know-how to look at a skull and know it's a young black bear, to be at the same time a right-wing Republican, one who calls me a snowflake. He infringes on my biases. To be politically conservative doesn't mark someone as uneducated or unintelligent. Intellectually, I know this. But still, why do I have this almost automatic bias? Maybe I should think more about this. Part of the answer is that many years ago, I read John Stewart's Mill pamphlet-length essay on liberty. I was in high school in small-town rural Pennsylvania. What led me to this heady task? Great Books of the Western World deserves a plug here. From a set of these tomes, a door-to-door salesman had left on perusal. The title grabbed me. Mill's ideas and prose drew me in, and I read carefully. He explained things I hadn't thought about with clarity and affirmed what is probably the most instinctual impulse towards liberalism. Extrapolating from Mill, to be liberal means simply enough to be open-minded. New ideas, fresh thought depend on cultural attitude. This is one of Mill's arguments. If we had to progress culturally, we need to be liberal. Otherwise, Where would innovation come from? The opposite of liberal, to hold to the status quo, by definition, neuters the possibility of social progress. I grant you this is almost crass oversimplification of Mill's thought and his rich prose style, but it's also reasonably fair assumption of one of his major themes. It made sense to me and lit me with a feeling of affirmation since I had, in a few situations, argued for liberalism without knowing what a world-class thinker was backing me up. On a personal basis, to be liberal, I remind myself not often enough, means to hold in mind what on any given topic my views of things might be off, wrong, 
the optimal attitude is open-mindedness. I may be insufficiently taking into account many things. To be folksy, it means there's a reason I have two ears and only one mouth. Strangely enough, I can think of no better example than my dad. He was by no means a liberal, politically or by attitude, nor was he, in academic sense, highly educated. He was a hard man, a strict and physical disciplinarian as a father. Significantly, in his makeup, was that he'd been to war. That came to play in the late 60s and 70s when we discussed a few times, earnestly, since I was young and nothing if not earnest fellow, the Vietnam War. He'd been elected commander of the local VFW and led a squadron of uniformed men who ceremoniously filed rifles to the air at local veterans' funerals. By no means predisposed to oppose a war in his country was fighting, he nevertheless took in what I had to say, memorable since many people in those days had no ear for anti-war sentiment. He also argued back and was a long-time adamantly pro-war, but to my utter surprise, one day he said, with finality, Mike, you're right. Most of this time I was living in another state, but well remember from one of my visits home the two of us at a kitchen table having father-son talk. This war's wrong. It wasn't me alone by any means that turned his thought. He'd seen too many young men in body bags on TV and began to doubt familiar tropes about domino theory, and anti-communism. He also, no doubt, had a few conversations with VFW comrades, but for me, nevertheless, it was a glorious moment, and I gloated not at all. The terminology of liberal conservative, I concede to myself, can impose barriers to clear thought, but still to be liberal means to be expansive and generous-minded, open to the possible, as opposed to holding on to preconceptions. One can say it's a difference between bounded and unbounded thought. Okay, this is most purely abstraction and means little more than to use different words for conservative and liberal. It means I'm thinking in circles. Good thinking, I conclude. Means getting beyond labels. It means being concrete to argue and discuss in concrete terms. So what does it mean that Harold called me a snowflake? Clearly, he intended as an insult. To answer, I could call on Shakespearean invective, e.g. Prince Howe to Falstaff. I might, for instance, say, Thou cantankerous, fickle brains, sallow-mouthed toad face. I prefer to think a little beyond invective. Few of us are unaware that snowflake is an imaginably complex phenomenon, unfailingly six-sided, symmetrical, and at the same time, infinitely varied. If you can make lace collars from snowflakes, I'm remembering my grandmother's living room doilies, you could probably make a fortune, provided you could afford a marketing consultant with, say, a Stanford MBA. A snowflake, absolutely, is a beautiful thing. Harold, although a true southerner, someone who recoils at the thought of snow or being or below freezing temperatures, might, if pressed, concede this. So if you're reading this, old pal, be aware that I'm taking it as a compliment that I remind you of something you've never seen, melting on a window, on your hand, or otherwise, an evanescent evocation of things that exist beyond our ability to express.
No doubt if we were to have this conversation, Harold would find another way to state his disregard for, in an historical nutshell, Yankee liberal elites, those of us, in other words, who read The New Yorker, enjoy the symphony and seldom eat chitlins and cheese grits, or for that matter, hush puppies. Harold, sometime you should try Scrapple, a.k.a. Ponhoss, or cutlets of young black bear, hard to find. Still without reserve, I admit I prefer your charcoal grilled fruity dimara, fresh catch grouper, and red snapper, bellemissio. For political discussion, it's okay with me if we can skip that. Thank you. Mike Schneider's poems appear in journals, anthologies, and three chapbooks. His full-length poetry collection, Spring Mills, is forthcoming. And for this week, Election Day next, this is Burr Beard with Domestic Chaos. Thanks for listening.